Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of August 30th, 2019. I'm Charles Hain. I'm George Edelman. And we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of great stuff this week. We're going to be talking about voluntary parting and automatic coverage for that coming out from both KitSplit and ShareGrid on the same day this week, which is huge news. We're also going to be talking about the Panasonic S1H hitting the streets offering raw over HDMI, right in the package bundle, and a whole bunch of other really fascinating stuff. We're gonna be talking about the brand new filmmaker mode, the Chris Nolan, Martin Scorsese endorsed format for TVs to show movies more correctly. Uh, We've got all that, we've got some tech news, and an Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. So our lead story this week, Kid Split and ShareGrid came out on Monday with automatic owner's guarantees. You need a little background to first off understand what's going on here. So if you don't, we'll, we'll take this to the brass tacks. Kid Split and ShareGrid are both uh, like Airbnb for filmmaking gear uh, is, I'm sure, a pitch that one of them has said in an investor meeting at some point in their history. Uh, although they're way less ethically compromised. Well, maybe they are. Eth- you know, Airbnb, the ethical drama is always like there's neighborhoods in New Orleans where it's all it used to be all families live there. And now it's all Airbnbs. I wonder if there's like, <laughs> you know, there's there's actually there's probably rental houses who are mad about Airbnb, uh, mad about kids split and share grid. Although there are also, as far as I can tell, a lot of rental houses that are like, oh, you mean I don't have to build a website? I can just list all of my stuff on this platform and I don't have to do web development. So I imagine that there's rental rental houses are probably way more split about share grid and kit split than communities that are changing. Like there's all I sorts of only, people who are mad about Bar- in Barcelona about Airbnb. There will be Airbnb I only, riots. I can only imagine what uh, some of the rental houses I've had experiences with in my life would do with web development. Sounds like a nightmare. Oh my god! Well, it's also <laughs> like it's like not only is it like some of those websites are fascinating it's also just like not your skill set you know what i mean like if you are the kind of person yes. who's like i yes. like gear i want to be in a room full of gear i want to keep up with the latest gear i want to like like you're not like web development is its own special skill and so we should let the people who are good at it do it it's a fascinating side thing just that like yeah when you get a company that's existed in success had success for a long time doing a specific kind of thing and then it's forced to adapt to the necessity of having relationships with consumers on the internet uh yeah it's exactly what something like KidSplit and something like ShareGrid do so well yeah not every company does it well in-house natively and KidSplit and ShareGrid both offer and actually ShareGrid I gotta point out has a very nice tool uh, it's a tool I'm particularly jealous of because it's a tool that I wanted to build like 10 years ago. I even had meetings with developers about. And it's a tool where you can go in and you can uh, – it's ShareGrid Pro. You can go in and you can list all of your stuff, uh, like your package. You're like, okay, I want to shoot red and I'm interested in Cine Primes and I'm interested in – and then like rental houses can all bid and you can see all the bids compared against each other. So Hmm. as opposed to I have to go one at a time to nine different rental houses and get bids and all of the bids are super confusing because one of them, like the body's a lot more, but the lenses are less. And one of them, the lenses are more and the bodies are less. And then the producer's like, hey, can we get the lenses over here and the body over here? And you're like, no, we don't really do that. 
you can see all of the data sort of laid out in a nice grid. We've sort of laid out exactly what these these things really do. I can only imagine as having, you know, having been a producer in the pre-ShareGrid kit split days, you'd get a list from a DP of, of equipment and you'd have to like take that list and shop around with it and then add all the quotes. What an annoying thing that we had yeah, to do. That was super then. annoying. Well, and also <laughs> a lot like, of DPs... Now that's... I was a gaffer for a long time before I was DPing, and even as a gaffer, and definitely a lot of the DPs I know, would want to be involved in that conversation with the producer and all of that bidding process, because if a producer doesn't know what some of this stuff is, and they're looking at it, and they're like, oh, well, this is Red Epic Body, but this rental house is offering me a Red One, I don't know the difference, but the Red One's way cheaper. Like, you know, I've been at camera preps. Oh, this is all 15 years ago, but I was at a camera prep where the DP walked in expecting one camera and there was another camera on the prep stage and he lost his shit with good reason um, because the producer clearly just like was like, oh, well, this bid's way less. So DPs and gaffers and, and department heads stay very involved in this bidding process. So let's get back to KidSplit and ShareGrid. KidSplit and ShareGrid, both of them have these founding stories that are really involved in like, oh my God, it's really weird. Especially like the New York example, KidSplit was like, all my friends own cameras. I'm always renting stuff, but I have to go all the way into Manhattan to rent it, then back to Brooklyn to shoot, then back to Manhattan to return it. Can I just have a way to know what all of my friends' gear is so that I can rent it from them directly down the street instead of going to Manhattan? Which is like one of the, you know, ShareGrid and KitSplit really democratize this whole thing. They make it easier to monetize gear if you buy it. There's all of that. However, there's been a big flaw in the platform, and it's not a flaw with KitSplit and ShareGrid. It is a flaw with the way insurance works. An insurance business will all, you know, they're in business to collect premiums and not pay out um, uh, yeah, claims. Right. Like that's that's the business model. And Let's be honest. Insurance yeah. is a little bit like the mafia. I, yeah, <laughs> You're buying a protection. <laughs> you're, you're, it's also one of those things of like, as a company, they're always going to attempt to find ways to not pay claims so that they can stay in business. And, yeah, right. And frankly, they, right. Of course, if they had to pay out every claim, being fair to their business model, if they had to pay every single claim, they would. You know, that would go out also, of business. Also, I'm going to be fair and say I never want them to pay a claim because I never want them to have to. I would like it so that nothing ever gets stolen, nothing ever gets broken, everything is just working, insurance would be way cheaper, it would be great. Obviously, that's like the Rock Candy Mountains where, like, you know, uh, <laughs> the, the, nice the creeks all run with gin. But, like, you know, <laughs> it would in an ideal world, we wouldn't need insurance because everything would be made of unobtainium and it would never break. Regardless, we need insurance. It's a wonderful thing. One of the things insurance does not cover, and this is particularly troubling for online platforms like KitSplit and ShareGrid, is – can we call them KitGrid for the rest of this article? That's probably going to get me in a lot of trouble. We're going to keep with KitSplit and ShareGrid. Is, and it's particularly troubling because it's something that you haven't had to deal with if you are not renting your own gear out. It's something called voluntary parting. So a very normal rental experience, I go to a rental house, I rent something, I'm out on a shoot, some sneaky motherfucker runs up on the shoot, grabs the Alexa by its handle and runs off with it. I file a police report, I go to insurance, that is theft, some sneaky motherfucker took it, I, I you know, and that is like such a clear cut and dry case of theft. So that, because it's theft, insurance has got you. So most theft scenarios that filmmakers have dealt with for the history of the film industry for 120 years are like that. However, if you are renting out your own gear, 
So, like, you know, I keep using this Keanu Reeves running away with a camera photo in all of these articles because it's a really yes. hilarious photo. And, you know, kind of get them clicks. Um, <laughs> it's, the, it's the best photo I have of someone stealing a camera. Regardless, I own a camera. Keanu hits me up on one of those platforms. So I get a text from Keanu, which has never happened before. And it's like, Keanu R wants to rent your camera this weekend. And I'm like, great. And then I show up at the door. Keanu opens the door. He pays me money for the camera through the online platform. It's all processed digitally. And then Keanu disappears, right? That is not theft. It's fraud. Because we had a contract for a specific situation. Keanu has defrauded me. Now, it is a it is one of those distinctions where you're like, but come on, that's theft, right? Like Keanu just took the camera he rented from you and disappeared to the winds. He ran down the street with it with some dude in a cowboy hat chasing him. But to insurance, that's not theft, that's fraud. And insurance does not cover that. Now, ShareGrid has, has historically been a little better about in this specific area than KitSplit. Uh, both services fight against this with a huge technology push to try and vet customers. 40-point background checks, all sorts of, you know, AI-assisted tools for, like, this is a new user, be extra careful. Like, as much vetting as an online platform can do, they both really do. Um, and so they're both really robust in that arena, and they have very, it's very rare that this happens. However, ShareGrid previously allowed you to opt in to an owner's guarantee where if this happened to you, you were covered. It was an opt-in previously, but they did have it. Um, and, hmm. you know, that was, you know, six months ago, the advice would have been, if you're using ShareGrid, opt into it. In May or June, there was a pretty big story that happened where someone was running out their Sony A7S camera. It's like a $3,500 camera. I think it was an A7S II or maybe it was an A7 III with a lens. And they rented it out and the person never came back. And they were like, oh, well, I'm covered by insurance because a lot of us operate under that assumption that we are. And uh, then the camera, you know, and ShareGrid and KidSplit. Right. And KidSplit owned that they didn't handle it initially correctly. KidSplit was like, no, I'm sorry, you're not. And like, I get from a business standpoint where you're like, I know we want to be able to just be like, oh, that sucks. Let's cover it for you automatically. But like, that's a lot of money. If that happens, you know, they said uh, KidSplit and ShareGrid, I think one of them's getting 0.1 and one of them's getting 0.2% of rentals. 0.2%. Uh, so it's like very rare on either platform. But if, if they're covering out of pocket every one, that could, that could shut a company down or at least heavily influence the decisions they can make about a business. So they didn't initially cover it. Then they did have an internal conversation, covered it, were very public about handling it. They got ahead of the story. I, they handled it well. In the end, the initial contact maybe wasn't the best, but I think they sort of got it out there in the best way possible. And then by the end of it, uh, they announced that they were going to, by the end of summer, they would have an owner's guarantee that would cover you up to $20,000 automatically. Um, and then this week, uh, both ShareGrid and KitSplit announced uh, their owner's guarantees. So now both platforms have an owner's guarantee that is automatic. Um, they're very similar. It is a $20,000 limit. This makes sense, right? Like if it's a $70,000 Arri Alexa camera package, you're going to spend six hours with someone checking it out right? Like it's not a quick process. So you have a very long time to get a pretty good sense of if they are defrauding you or not. I imagine most of the fraud is under $20,000. I bet it's super hmm. rare because frankly, if I'm an Arri Alexa owner, like if I own an Alexa LF 
and I'm spending right. eight hours with someone, and they clearly don't understand, like, what's the difference between an LF and a Mini? And, like, oh, different lenses don't work with this? And, like, what's image circle and coverage? Like, I'm going to get more and more worried the whole time. And that because a $70,000 camera package needs a level of sophistication in the checkout process that would really, you know, indicate to me, you don't send a producer who doesn't know how to do the checkout to pick up that package. You send the first AC or the, or the DP sometimes on smaller productions who will know that package and have a lot of informed questions and who will notice, oh, this cable's missing. Or like, can I get a backup on that? And you'll feel confident by the end they are not, you know, the hamburglar. I'm sure someone's going to end up sending a PA. And then <laughs> yeah, that's but the easiest honestly, thing to do. Honestly, that's where you get into trouble. If I had a $70,000 camera package and someone sent a PA to pick it up, I'd be worried. Because that yeah. tells me as a production. Like, I, I worked on, in all of my career, I worked on one production where there was not a, like, camera prep where we sent the ACs. Uh, production didn't want to pay for it. Uh, like, literally, they were like, hey, can you just drop the gear off? So we arrived on set the first day. I was an operator on this job, and like it was all a mess, and cables were missing, and cables weren't there. That and they were, and we were like, "Hey, we should like document this for the rental house." And then, you know, it was, um, and the production was like, "No, no, no, we just need to start shooting." And so like <laughs> the return was a mess. The production in the rental house got in a huge fight. Like if you're a little rental house and you have a seventy thousand dollar camera package, you want to be going over that with the people renting it and agreeing on the list of what is actually. Like a $70,000 camera package, you can't just send a PA with it to pick up a couple cases. Budget to have someone, preferably the first AC or the, or the DP on a smaller show, spend the day with the gear. Because otherwise you're going to waste half of your first day with like, oh, we don't have this cable or this shim doesn't fit or whatever. But that doesn't happen a lot when you're renting like an, A7S, an A7 III, right? It fits in one backpack. It's like four or five pieces. Someone could show up and you could say, hey, do you know this package? I mean, I've never spent less than an hour on a kit. With one exception, I've never spent less than an hour at one of these things because I want to talk about the thing I'm renting and I want them to ask questions. In retrospect, it's a really good vetting hour. Um, mm. I, I wasn't so thinking that. So that's a good piece of advice, really, that's like runs alongside this story, is that if you're going to do these things, make sure you get to know the person just because, you know, they could be defrauding you and you want to get to know yeah. the ins and outs of who they are and the gear. And it sounds like, you know, the big factor here is that with the 20,000 guarantee that's going to cover you completely in most cases no it's right? still going to be unless an annoying it, unless... headache I bet like anytime you're dealing right. with insurance and paperwork like if you are doing a sh if you're renting it out Saturday Sunday and then you have a shoot Wednesday I doubt I, I, you're not going to have your package by Wednesday right and then hmm. if you have your package all heavily customized or you had some weird old lens that might not be findable like you still want to vet the people you're renting to KidSplit and ShareGrid do that extensively digitally. You should vet them a little bit in person. And then after that, this is there as a backup. There are some differences. So $20,000 is the cutoff. I hope that gets a little higher in the future, but that's a fair price point for me right now. But um, KidSplit do It will have... get higher, I, I would expect. It will get higher as the usage of the platforms yes. increases and the and the size of the packages and the quality of the gear and it becomes less like you know we're we've seen like you could we compared them to airbnb or you you know uber i mean i guess yeah. that comes with a whole other stuff but those companies as they become more commonplace or as as use of them becomes more commonplace standards and you know all of that has to go up and up and up and up, and up. yeah so, so it makes sense to me that eventually yeah it will become a bigger a bigger piece of insurance. 
but there are a few like very small type relevant uh, differences. So first off, there's a 20% deductible on the guarantee for kit split, but not for share grid. So let's say $5,000 camera gets stolen on share grid, you're covered. Gets, sorry, not stolen, voluntary parted. Gets voluntary <laughs> parted on, and, and I'm not mocking kit split and share grid here, I'm mocking insurance companies and lawyers, because we can always mock lawyers. I love lawyers, but we can mock them. Um, and uh, 20% deductible. So your $5,000 camera, you're out 20%. Um, that's uh, $1,000. So that's actually kind of hefty. So that's one difference. Uh, also, KidSplit says that they can request a confidentiality agreement to be signed for the coverage to operate. So you can't, like, then write about it. Um, and also, Kit, uh, KidSplit and ShareGrid used to have identical fees. It used to be 5% fees for renters and 15% fees for owners. And now KidSplit's going up to 17% for owners and 6% for renters. It's a small change, but 2%, you know, on a if I'm doing $200,000 in rentals a year, 2% of that is four grand. You know, because like uh, people ask me all the time, hey, I'm thinking about buying an LF Mini. That's the number one thing I've been asked in the last six months. LF Mini, is it time to buy one? Um, LF Mini, <laughs> you could potentially have 100000 in income over two years for a full package with all the pieces and parts and accessories. Over the two years, 2% of a hundred grand is two grand. Two grand is a new lens, two grand. So it's like, it's something to look at the way those prices are changing. I think this is a really overall good thing for filmmakers. First off, I think it's a great example of someone using the power of the pen, right? Like they had their camera story, they wrote a medium post about it, it got some traffic, it encouraged both of these companies, neither of which had this as the default before. Now both of them have that as the default, so that's going to be really good for filmmakers. It's another example of the ways in which, like, like for me, I, I also think of both these platforms as a social network. Like, when I tell those stories about, like, you know, I rented some weird stuff to a DIT once, and then we sat around in a coffee shop for an hour talking, and I'm like, you know, he's a DIT I might hire someday. Would never have met him otherwise. He lives in Westchester. I live in Brooklyn. But, like, I had some obscure gear he wanted to rent, and we talked about it. And, like, those kind of connections are one of the things that are beautiful about these platforms. Like, it really keeps opening your network up. But you got to keep evaluating the people you rent with. All right, up next, Filmmaker Mode. So this is an announcement probably some of you saw on your social media feeds this week. It's a really exciting one. It went across a lot of news platforms, which doesn't always happen with something so obscure and technical. But basically, uh, there's this thing called the UHD Coalition, which is a bunch of manufacturers of UHD televisions. UHD is 4K, and they got together. And because of six months ago, Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie and a whole bunch of other people pushing for like, you need to set the settings right on your TV. Your TV looks wrong, which was bad press for TV makers. Um, I think that is probably not unrelated to this story moment happening. They went out. They got a whole bunch of filmmakers together. I think it's 170 filmmakers or something like that. And they are going to launch an official filmmaker mode for your TVs. What this means is that it is a mode that is not designed to be brighter or faster or sharper. It is a mode that is designed to as closely as possible replicate the original experience of uh, viewing the content. Now, obviously, 65-inch screen at home is not going to look the same as a 50-foot theater. The Arclight Cinerama Dome and your home TV are never going to look the same. But TVs have not really been very good at catering to this mode in the past. TVs were very much catered towards sports. They want high refresh rates and high sharpness and bright colors and 
you want to be able to watch it with all the lights on on a Saturday afternoon because you're watching the game and you're eating nachos and like nachos are great and <laughs> games are fun. So I, I and that's a big market. So I understand why TV manufacturers were pushing for that. But it often left us really frustrated when we would watch a classic movie at home and it would look nuts. And you're like, no, 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 I saw that in the theater. And that's not supposed to look like that. And then filmmakers, it's especially frustrating for us because most of us have at least some access to. Like when I used to own a post house, we had a calibrated theater that we did color grading in. And on more than one occasion, we would watch Ghostbusters there on a Saturday afternoon because like calibrated, (laughs) entirely accurate theater. Like, why would you not do that? So, you know, filmmakers often have a way to, like, oh, get into a screening room and watch something perfectly. Um, So this is super exciting. It's really great that it's going to be built into the menus. It's going to be easy to find. Um, There are already sort of some things happening like this. Like, there's the ISF expert mode in the LG OLEDs (laughs) that people really like and that have been very useful and are a really good starting place for calibration. Um, This, I mean, look, TVs are getting stupid good. So I was about to say... This might not mean you're going to want to evaluate color accuracy on this mode, but I have to say, like, I calibrated an LG OLED recently, like one of the brand new 9 series. Out of the box, turn it on, it was under D-Log E2. So, you know, when you're evaluating the accuracy of a monitor, use a probe and the scale we use is D-Log E, and uh, anything under 5 is considered, like, reasonably good, or it was 10 years ago, it's not anymore. Anything under 2 is visually indistinguishable from perfect. You can get it more accurate, but the human eye won't notice. Um, So, like, with calibration, we got it down to around 1.1, but it was, like, out of the box, it was as color accurate as, like, the best monitor you could buy in 2006, 2007. Like, the color (laughs) monitor that, like, the monitoring systems they were using to color, like, oh, brother, where art thou? And Domino were as accurate as this, like, $3,000 TV out of the box. So, it's we're in this crazy time where, like, you know what? Maybe this, I'm going to have to evaluate filmmaker mode, obviously, when it comes out, but like, it's going to be good. Now, here's my terror about this. My terror about this goes back to a little show called Game of Thrones. <laughs> there are. I've already wiped my memory of, I don't know what you're talking about. I never so, watched any show called Game of Thrones. I know, it's gone. And now you're going to be on an airplane in a couple of years and it's going to be like on the on screen menu and you're going to watch it. Because it's gone from your memory. And then there's going to be a little old granny sitting next to you who's going to watch you basically watching porn on an airplane. I tell this story because the first time I watched Game of Thrones, I was on an airplane and someone really recommended the show. And so I was watching it. And, like, there's a lot of nudity in season one of Game of Thrones. And, like, there was this nice old, like, grandma who, like, kept looking over. And I was like, I can't can't skip these scenes. It's the plot. Right. (laughs) Game of Thrones reminds me of what my worry is. If everybody reminds, did we have, like, a hashtag name for that really dark episode? Like Game of Thrones too dark. Was there a hashtag name yeah, for it? I forget what yes. it was. That's why Something hashtags like that. disappear from my brain. But there was that episode of Game of Thrones that was way too dark in April. And I'm going to tell you something. I watched it on a calibrated television. I have a home TV. It's not a $3,000 OLED. It's actually a shockingly good $500 TV. Um, it's, I mean, I, I mean, sure. I'm going to, I'm going to give them a shout out. TCL, their Roku TV. I got the 55 inch. It's shockingly good image quality. Once you like go into the menus and you tweak it a little bit. I watched it on that. I set it up. I to actually be want, I want Charles. I want to get like Charles's cheat sheet for setting up my TV at home because I know where this story's going because I remember when we talked about it at the time and you were like, it didn't look too dark to me. It looked too bright because I think I'm calibrated to see things correctly and they 
calibrated it for people who didn't have it set up right. Yeah, right. They, they were sh- making it so like you, too for bright, you, it was like wow, you're right? Because that's yeah. what you do you, when you're when you're working on a movie. You everyone every single colorist has had the experience where the client in the room was like, make it darker, make it darker, make it darker, and then you watch it at home that night as a tech check, or they go home and watch it that night, and they send you these screen caps of a black screen, like. Walking the line of how dark you can make something is something every working colorist has practice with. So I watched it and I was like, okay, you guys got a little conservative here. I respect that. That was probably the right move. And then the internet disagreed. Basically, what I'm getting to, though, is that it's the entire image pipeline that creates that image. So I'm assuming... Netflix is going to be part of this consortium and Amazon because Netflix are tech nerds. If you've never read the like Netflix technical delivery specification sheet, you totally should. It's amazing. Um, and they're actually not they're not a part of this yet. Oh, well, like somebody needs to drag but them they, and Amazon into it because it needs to be yes. the entire pipeline. Because if it's yes. just the end mode of the TV, but then HBO is not involved and Netflix isn't involved and Amazon is not involved because the ideal scenario is all of these TVs have apps. I have a Roku TV, so it's a Roku app. I go to Netflix and Netflix knows that it's this TV mode, that it's filmmaker mode. And the entire pipeline is dialed in from the file to the screen. Then I'm going to be really excited and then I'm going to feel super confident because like I've even seen in my Roku TV, there'll be the same media on different apps and it'll look different through different apps. Another interesting factor there is that like you were just talking about delivery and I think we both have different a different angle on experience there, which is like I remember the first time like doing as a post soup and you'd get like or finishing a project or a feature and you'd get delivery specs and maybe it's for a network and like you know a viacom or like these all these companies are going to have different specs right yeah. so you have to meet different standards and so yeah there's a whole set of things where um there's opportunities for you to change the image quality at points in the process before you're just talking about a setting on a TV. And at each one of those points in the pipeline, uh, someone could make a decision that's like, yeah, let's err on the side of X or Y because we're not sure where we're going to finish. Because like we talked about with that Game of Thrones episode, there's no way they could uh, color correct for... I don't even have a rough number of how many households and different TVs and different manufacturers. Yeah. Like, it's not like they can just think about, I mean, God, remember back in the day, you would hear advice uh, on things like, talk to your projectionist at the festival. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so you can, so you can make sure that you're going to get the best possible quality of the image. That's like, we're in a whole different ball game now in terms of like, and I mean, you know, one of the cool things about this to me as like kind of an old head when it comes to cinematic image is like Martin Scorsese. And he's specifically talking about like the preservation of film and like, you know, I want to see the best version of, on my TV or my iPad of the old movies that are being streamed on TCM or whatever. Yeah. Like I, I want to get say Criterion of- and Canopy need to be involved in this conversation too, because if Criterion and Canopy are delivering up files properly felt prep for filmmaker mode, so you can watch the umbrellas of Cherbourg and it looks like it should, or like La Samurai and it looks like it should. I saw a version of La Samurai where it looked like people had flesh tones. And that, like, <laughs> Jean-Pierre Melville would have had a heart attack. He worked so hard on that movie to desaturate skin tones, which was so hard to do in the 60s. And he fought so hard to do it. And then clearly at some point in the mastering process, someone cranked him up. 
And uh, yeah, so it needs to be uh, a whole please, bunch if, of people. If you haven't this. seen that, th- those are a couple of nice French movie deep cuts from Charles. Check oh, them I didn't mean to go out. double French there, but you know, the double <laughs> French happens. They're, they're so good. Le Samurai is the kind of movie that's just cool to put on at a, like in your house to just have it on. It's just yeah. everything about it is, is awesome. But, um, I, yeah, I think that, uh, so where does like the criterion channel, I think their relationship is with Vimeo. They did an excellent job there. It's, it's a great platform and it looks, a lot of it looks great, but yeah, you want them involved, right? You want yeah. everything to be, uh, from, like you said, the whole pipeline, you want it all to be, in order so filmmakers are confident that every choice they're making is going to be accurately presented at the final stage. Yep, absolutely. But it's an exciting step. It's going to be called Filmmaker Mode. It's, it's got a whole lot of heavy hitters very involved. All of these heavy hitters understand this issue far better than, than I do. And so I, I'm confident that they're all going to make sure that these pieces come into place. So and I guess far, start far looking at I do. Yeah, uh, look out for this stuff <laughs> next year, I guess, or the year after. Hopefully soon we will start seeing it. All right, so those were our headlines for the week. Follow us after the break. We're going to be talking about tech news, the big tech story this week, Panasonic SH-1 hitting the streets with RAW over HDMI. All right, guys, we are back with tech news. Our number one tech story this week, this is actually a camera that George was in the room when they announced it back at Cinegear in June. This is the Panasonic S1H, and it is hitting the streets now. People have hands on it. Uh, James Deruvo got some hands on it at a Panasonic event. He writes a lot of tech news for us. There's a whole bunch of cool stuff to talk about with this camera. The big headline news, and it's headline news that follows up on a story last week. Atomos makes these external recording devices, right? Atomos external recording devices use a system called ProRes RAW to record internal. I can actually, I would bet 50 bucks that Atomos will never support Blackmagic RAW. Blackmagic RAW is open. Like, they want other people to support it. Atomos (laughs) will not do it. And that's a story for another podcast. Um, But Atomos has ProRes RAW, which is an Apple product that you can record RAW video. You take the undebayered video compress it, record it so that you can do things like ISO adjustments in post, color balance in post. I did a review of it about a year ago using the EVA-1 and a Shogun Inferno, brought it into Final Cut 10. You're like, you. there are legitimate image quality improvements out of ProRes RAW. It's cool. Um, however, it's been, when it was first launched, it was all SDI only. So you needed something like an EVA-1 with an SDI connector out. You needed things like that to do ProRes RAW external. Jeremy uh, Young, the CEO of uh, Atomos at NAB was like, we're ready for HDMI. Manufacturers, make it happen. We want HDMI RAW. We're going to do it. You guys get it together. And then, you know, manufacturers were not fast. The first one to announce it was Nikon, but Nikon sort of bungled it. I don't, I need to... There's, there's some weird thing where filmmakers don't seem to like Nikon. I don't know why. I have no anti-Nikon bias. I feel warmly towards Nikon. I like the little red thing. I've done a couple Nikon-y things. I've shot with a lot of Nikon lenses that I've loved. But there's some weird thing with filmmakers and Nikon where for some reason filmmakers don't seem to like it. I don't know what it is. I'm sure hmm. now that I've said that publicly, people on Twitter will be like, dude, you don't remember when Nikon said filmmakers suck? I, I don't. I remember Nikon <laughs> being really nice to us. Um 
So uh, let me know, Twitter, what I'm forgetting about Nikon. Nikon did it first. Nikon had the first HDMI over uh, HDMI RAW. However, you had to send your camera back and pay for the upgrade. So it's not even like you could like pay for the upgrade and like then install the firmware at home. You had to send your camera back. So you bought it. You've been shooting with it. You got to send it back for two weeks to like upgrade a thing and pay extra money. Panasonic is handling this much better. Good for you. It's a little bit later. They're the second one to the fray with HDMI RAW, but it is, um, it's, you don't pay for the upgrade. You don't have to send it back in. So uh, right now it's only announced to work with the Atomos Ninja 5. I don't know why it wouldn't work with the Inferno 7 or the Shogun 7. I, I hope it does because I kind of like the 7-inch monitor personally. I own a Shogun Inferno 7 uh, or a Shogun Inferno. Um, and the Shogun 7 looks really nice. So I would I hope it also supports the 7-inch. Right now it works with the 5-inch. I mean, look, there are some Blackmagic cameras that we talked a lot about a couple podcasts ago that do RAW <laughs> very affordably. And I was initially not excited about the cameras. Everyone else was excited about it. It's gotten me more excited about it. I'm like, I'm excited to get some hands-on time with it. The footage is looking nice. But there's a couple like weird things about those cameras. Like they're smaller sensors. It's either a micro four-third sensor or a super 35 sensor. We're really moving towards a full-frame sensor world. And mm-hmm. like the really smallest sensor, the MFT sensor, you can't re- you can adapt it to any lens you want. But the EF, the Super 35 sensor, the 6K, you can't really adapt it to that many places. The S1H sort of ticks every box. So 6K, HDMI to uh, ProRes RAW. Uh, it's L mount, so a whole host of like Sigma and Leica and Panasonic lenses all work for it. They came out with a bunch of dedicated Panasonic cinema style like. Cinema leaning lenses. They're not like pure cine lenses, but they're like clearly more focused on the filmmaker lenses. And you're going to be adapted you... to anything. You can adapt it to PL or all sorts of things. Okay. I was going to say, can you remind me what they can't adapt to on the lens side? You couldn't. But I, so it sounds like... with these mirrorless cameras, the only thing you really can adapt to is each other. So like you can't take, uh, you can't make yeah. it as like Panasonic L to Sony E or Got Canon it, yeah. R, because the flange focal distance on all of it is so short. So basically, it, one way to think about it is contemporary can adapt to contemporary. So like a new thing can adapt to a new thing. But all of the old things are in play. Anything where they used to have, a stick, have to stick a mirror in there, so like EF and PL and all of those bigger focal length uh, formats are all available. Nice. Um, and there's even a built-in anamorphic mode. So I put a PL mount adapter on there. I'm using anamorphics, and so I'm shooting a windowed, like a smaller part of the sensor, anamorphic mode. There's just so many boxes this check. Panasonic also has a really, like, they were a little slow in the EVA1 space. The EVA1 should have come out about two years before it did, or a year and a half. But, like, Panasonic is, like... Filmmakers have a warm spot for Panasonic between the DVX100 and the HVX200 being really beautiful color science and these nice little packages, the original Vericam and then the new Vericam LT, which they shot the Doosan and uh, Crazy Rich Asians. Like it's always felt like Panasonic always felt like a very approachable, beautiful thing. Like Alexa's the beautiful thing, but it's super expensive and I'm not always going to get to have on it. Red color science was wonky. I feel a lot of affection for Red. I did a feature on Red. I'm super a big fan. But like, we talked about all the great things about a lot of these cameras. But yeah, Panasonic is is near and dear because yeah, the DVX they kind of like you know they made a very high quality video image 
available to us at an early point in this process. Oh like my god, I remember the first time I did like... a DVX job. Somebody came into the edit room. It was like at USC, and there was like fifteen edit suites. And so, like a first year walked by and was like, "Is that thirty five millimeter?" And we we were like, <laughs> we we made fun of him, but like he made our hearts glow because like you know we finally had a camera in our hands where like if you lit it properly and you were patient and you zoomed all the way in, you could actually craft these images where you didn't feel like video was standing in your way, right? Where yeah, like someone man. could look it's at it. That- and be impressed totally. by it. Like, it was still mini-DV, but, like, right. we're excited to have Panasonic in this race, right? I think everybody's excited to have Panasonic in this race. It's an exciting thing. Dual-native ISO, and it's true hardware dual-native ISO. So that means that there's two native ISOs for this camera, so you're going to get really l- great low-light performance out of cranking it up to its higher native ISO, but you're going to get really nice fine-grained images at the lower one. So this is different than usually when you're clicking through the ISOs in a camera, it's just applying digital gain. It's not a separate circuit path. This camera has two hmm. circuit paths. They've also, they are bragging a lot that they've cracked the record time dilemma. A lot of these little cameras, one of the big problems is record time. Batteries for these cameras aren't designed to last a super long time, and heat processing is the big issue. So, you know, I mean, this was always a problem on 5D Mark II jobs is like, you know, a professional job going out, like when House did an episode shot on 5D Mark II, I, took, I think they took six of them out. Because like you're shooting for a while, and then all of a sudden it just shuts down because it's too hot. It was a big thing with those cameras. Panasonic's like, we have heat has been a big part of the engineering we put into this. So I think we're all really excited for a whole bunch of aspects of this. Also, frankly, in a year, we will have the EVA FF, probably, the EVA full frame. Or we'll probably have a Veracam full frame first, and then a year after that, an EVA full frame. Because frankly, like even Canon... Their full frame option, their full frame like C line is still twenty five thousand dollars. I don't think there's like a full frame under twenty, but like I think next year we will probably have a Veracam full frame, and then the year after that we will probably have an EVA full frame that's like an eight thousand dollar killer full frame camera. Um, so I think we're all like super excited about it. It's the camera that I've I was really excited about it at the announcement, and you know especially now that they have RAW working with Atomos for ProRes RAW now. A reminder, right now the only post-platform that supports ProRes RAW is Final Cut 10. Also a reminder, Final Cut 10 is getting a lot better, and we have a couple articles on our site from people who are like, I've moved over to it permanently. You guys who haven't are fools. It's the best. If you wanted to go end-to-end and have ProRes RAW, you could shoot on the S1H, you could get your Atomos stuff, Mm -hmm. and you would finish on Final Cut 10. And those things would all work together. Or you'd cut on Final Cut 10. And finish in Final Cut 10. Uh, yeah, I, uh, okay. I don't remember. Somebody's gonna fix this for me on Twitter. Does does Resolve support Pro's RAW? I don't think it does yet. But that's the kind of thing I say, and then someone's like, "Oh my God, you missed that announcement." I don't think you can get Pro's RAW under Resolve yet. I don't think it's there. I think it will be there, but um, but the other interesting thing about this is that it's still an external recorder, which is why it's not tied up in the Red Apple patent fight, because the Red Apple patent fight is about internal RAW recording. Right. So right. because it's an external recorder to the Atomos, it's fine and you can do it and Red is likely not getting a license fee, which is how this follows up on our, our conversation last week. Let me ask, like before we move on, one more thing about it. So the price point right now on the S1H is is like just under 4000 Yes. And that puts it, you know, fairly high for like, it's kind of like, mid. would we call it mid-range? Like is it well, like also because this... if you want ProRes RAW, you're gonna have to get a Shogun Seven, which is twelve hundred, I think. So right. It's not... So should we talk about what the real cost 
of the S20? Like, it's not just the out-of-the-box buying the camera? Throw in a lens, it's cam- a $6,000 camera. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you're, if you're going to invest in that, going back to our other story, you really want to get involved with ShareGrid and KitSplit so you and can rent it out. You know, start making... Right? Start yes. making your money back. <laughs> Absolutely. Although my Just advice don't rent this, to Keanu Reeves. Yes. Because Keanu stealing he cameras. Runs, he'll run away with it. Yeah. Um, and my advice voluntary, always on uh, that. Not, that, not theft. Voluntary uh, disappearance or whatever. Yeah, voluntary pardon. <laughs> yeah. And the key with that is always uh, it trickles off. Right? Like, you, if, you're gonna, if you're thinking, I'm going to buy an S1H and try and pay it off on KidSplitter SureGrid, buy it now. The rental rates will be highest in the beginning and trickle off over time. Cameras like the Alexa Mini, and I'm sure the LF Mini have like longer windows. They still make money over four or five years. Cameras like cameras under five grand tend to make money eighteen months to two years. So, like, if you lose a significant amount of your your rental chunk chunk if you wait like a year, because that's the big year to make a lot of rentals on this. This camera's not going to rent as much in four years. If you wanted to go out and buy an Alexa Mini right now, you're probably well. Alexa Mini has already been renting for five years like crazy, but an Alexa Mini mm-hmm. LF. You're going to get three or four years of really solid rentals. And even when those rentals slow down or the rates go down, that camera is still going to have some pretty solid rates for a while. Awesome. All right. So that is tech news. We're going to be back with an Ask No Film School. We didn't have one last week. Nerdin Orlick asked way back in May. Sorry it took us so long, Nerdin. It's been a crazy summer. I've been shooting videos mostly outside, <laughs> and I'm buying a lot of gear, but not lights. Uh, I wanted to shoot one video inside the house and... I realized inside the house I need lights. So I'm learning about lighting and I'm looking at recommendations, but there are so many options. I want to do music videos and weddings. What do you recommend? My budget's 500 euros. All right. Wait, so, his budget's 500. Euros? What? Euros? Okay. Euros? How's that word said? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to roughly round that around to $500. So first off. Okay. Uh, well, with Brexit happening, who knows? Yeah, I mean, seriously. Um, <laughs> way to make it. Yeah, there we go. Brexit and uh, whatever the hell happened where, par- where Boris Johnson is like, yeah, and then we're not going to talk about it in par- Parliament, which is like bold. <laughs> Staying out of politics one day at a time. So here's the tricky thing with lighting. First off, exciting. It sounds like you're having a lot of fun making movies. That's great. Welcome to the never-ending cost of being a filmmaker. You will never stop spending money on shit. Uh, it is so, it like, yeah, it's just part of filmmaking is new tools keep coming out and stuff. And lighting is one of those things that like, I want it to be way cheaper than it is, but it's not. So the first thing I, I would have you think about is first off, you're going to have to just lean in and go LED. Uh, obviously there are, you know, you might be able to get some good deals on some older, more affordable tungsten lighting. But I feel like we're really at a place now where LED is there in terms of affordability that like having a couple LEDs in your kit is going to be one of those super useful things that is always really beneficial. So I think you should really be looking in the LED space. You're really talking about sort of the affordable LED space. You're going to be looking at companies like Aperture. Felix has a few offerings. There's a few other people down there. Um, there's a company out of China called Came TV. I've used a few of their lights. So there's some options in that space. The first thing I think you should think about, and I, th- I think you should think about it specifically because you said weddings and music videos, is you're never going to have the budget to light the whole wedding hall, right? But actually, 15 years ago, one of my first jobs was working for a wedding company, and all of them had on-camera lights that they would just put on. To, it was Frezzies back then, cause, and you had to like, carry the, belt, the battery in your belt in your back pocket. But all they wanted to do was they wanted to ensure they had enough fill light to see people's faces for the daddy-daughter dance and the 
and for, you know, people cutting the cake and things like that. And weddings are a place where, like, the hall should be lit enough that there's, like, a base level of light in the space. And then you're really using that on-camera light to try and pick out individuals in the scene. What's beautiful about where we are now with those on-camera lights is, you know, Bright Spot out of Scotland has this amazing on-camera light. And what's really cool about it, first off, it's super fucking bright. Uh, in my review... Um, I accidentally turned it on in my eyes when I got it, and I was like, fuck me, that's bright. It's very bright. <laughs> um, but it's super cool because it's designed, first off, it works with Sony batteries, uh, but beyond working with Sony batteries, which is always a very useful thing, um, it also, they have a little accessory for it where you can run it down to your hand grip. So if you have a hand grip on your camera, you can run a little knob down to your hand grip, and then on your hand grip, you can adjust the brightness. So you have a brightness knob, but it runs down to you. And this is super cool because I remember so many of the weddings I shoot, I'd be like shooting the wedding and I'm trying to get the shot. And then I realized my bright light's too bright. So I'm like reaching up and I'm trying to like feel around for where the little brightness knob is and turn it up so I can see like whatever is happening or turn it down because it's too bright and the bright is squinting and everybody's looking at me. And the ability in those kind of live event scenarios to have a knob down by your thumb and it's like wherever your pistol grip is already set up and you're like automatically rolling that light around as you shoot, huge. It is one of those things that when I saw that from Blindspot, I was like, I wish everybody did this. It's super awesome. Hmm. So that's going to be my recommendation for like an on-camera unit. Aperture also has a nice on-camera unit. Um, there's a bunch of other little on-camera units that I think are really useful. After you get your on-camera unit set up, you're going to realize that there's going to be moments where the on-camera unit is actually going to be useful in music videos. They're almost never useful in narrative, but because it creates this like real punchy, flashy camera look. But for certain sort of performance things in music video where someone's like leaning at the lens, it can provide like a really nice eye sparkle. After that, so hmm. let's say you've spent 200 bucks on that, 150 bucks on that. Um, you're not going to have a lot left over, so you're going to wait a little bit. And then you're going to start looking at like a couple lights you can put on a stand, right? Um, this, Felix has a very affordable little three light kit. Aperture has a thing with the 120D. And I, I think you should look at one of those two. These are the ones that are coming up to me. Somebody on Twitter let me know. There's a bunch of other LEDs I love. Um, you know, I obviously, I love hive lighting. There's a hive lighting, backlighting, my little three light setup. I write reviews lift. I don't, oh, Hive actually has an affordable unit you should look at. They have a little Hive 25 now. And the fun thing about that little Hive Bumblebee 25 is it's full RGB control. So I would look at the Hive. Um, and you should maybe think about, instead of a light on a stand, maybe a tube light instead. So companies like uh, Nanlite, uh, Pavo Tubes, or uh, Digital Sputnik with their Voyager lights, or uh, Quasar Science, uh, Astera. Astera is going to be out of your budget, although they're in Europe, so maybe they're cheaper in Europe. Um, why do I suggest a tube light? Well, the fun thing about a tube light, stand lights are great. If I want to go outside at night and put up a backlight out in a field, I need like a stand light, a punchy light. I want to get like... Aperture just came out with like a Leco attachment. I want like an Aperture 300D with a Leco on it, giving me that hot Robbie Richardson backlight. That 300D is a grand. The spotlight's 500 bucks. That's out of your budget. The fun thing about a tube light, like a four foot Nanlite Pavo is like 400 bucks. I think a two foot digital Sputnik Voyager is 400 bucks. Like is it a tube light that puts out a lot of light, but you can sort of stick them places much more easily. You don't need to worry about stands as much. I taught a class this summer and we had four of them and we were constantly like, I need a little light there. Like put this on the floor. Like I need a little backlight there. Like tape it to the ceiling. Like they're small, they're flexible. They put out a lot of output. They're battery powered. The Pavos are waterproof. Honestly, if I had 500 bucks to spend, 
when you have $2,000, get something that goes on a stand and has some punch. For where you are in your career, like one on-camera light and one like like a Nanlite Pavo tube and a bright spot or an aperture on-camera light, I think that's going to be like a dynamite $500 combination. That is not the answer I thought I was going to give when I read your no film, Ask No Film School question. <laughs> so I'm really glad I waited to answer it so I could give this different answer that I wasn't anticipating. But it evolved. I think what's just cool about, like, I don't know. I have no idea what lights someone should buy right now. I'm so overwhelmed by how much is available right now and how powerful and flexible all of it is that all I can think is we really, like, going back to other things I really want to get up on the website is something that really gives people a full rundown, a full guide of, like, what kind of packages, what kind of lighting packages can you build at what budgets? Like, what kind yeah. of kits can you have that are, you know, and, like, just, like, you know, with cameras and talking about, you know, what's your, uh, as an owner operator who's renting stuff out, like, where's your maximum opportunity to recoup costs and things like that? I think that would be an amazing resource for us to put together. Awesome. Yeah, no, we should totally work on that. It seems like a big undertaking, but let's get to it. All right, guys, so that has been the No Film School podcast for this week. Uh, you can always read all sorts of these articles on nofilmschool.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charles Hain. I'm on Instagram, also at Charles Hain. I have a separate podcast that is only tech news. That's, that's it. It is just, like, this new camera. This Like, literally, I did a story about firmware. So if you are like, uh, those tech news stories aren't interesting, skip it, because it's just that. But if you're like, I could use some more firmware update stories, check out theweekinfilmtech.com and anywhere you subscribe to podcasts. I also have two books coming out from Focal Press this fall, Business and Entrepreneurship for Filmmakers and a Color Grading 101 textbook. And if you're in the New York Tri-State area, I'm going to be at Adorama giving presentations September 18th and I think October 29th. I'm going to make the October 29th presentation, which is on lighting with apps, very Halloween spooky. I don't know what that means. I just decided to do that right now, but we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I'm George Edelman, at George Edelman on Twitter.com. You don't want to follow me on Instagram because, you know, it'll be like pictures of my kids and stuff. I will see everybody next week on the No Film School Podcast. <laughs>